Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is November the 26th, 2018, and this is episode 2332 of the Survival Podcast. 2,332 episodes now. Uh, it is a Monday, so this is a listener feedback show. This is where you send me your emails. You send those emails to the... Super secret email address. Honestly, it's probably one of the most publicly known email addresses in the world. Jack at the survivalpodcast.com. And I'm sure there's people that have better known email addresses, but I don't think those people actually read their email and they have some person doing it. I don't have a screener. I read all of my own emails. I don't have a super secret squirrel email that some people know and other people don't. All my email goes into the same hole, as it were. It all ends up in the same box. I actually have some other emails. JackSpirico at gmail.com. That'll come to me. But it all comes to the same place. And uh, so that means when you send me an email, I will see it. Now, whether it'll get on the air or not really depends on how you handle things and what the email volume is and what I feel like talking about on a Monday, just to be completely honest. But here's how you do it. You put TSPC in the subject line. TSPC, like it's a word. You put a space, and then you put, what you know, question for Jack, article for Jack, comment for Jack, whatever. Jack, you're a jerk. Whatever you want to put there. Then, in your email, you... With one sentence, you either ask a question or make your point. Then you hit return a couple times, and then give me your details. If you do that, you'll be more likely to get on the air. Of course, if it is in relation to an article or something like that, please include a link. Uh, here's the stuff that I've gotten so far for this week set up for you. Uh, should prices really go down in a well-run society? This is a throwback to something I talked about last week before we went off the air for the holidays. And uh, a reference to Robert Kiyosaki's book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. It's pretty old at this point. And, of course, it is a fiction book, but it's still one I think there's a lot of wisdom in. And we'll talk all about that when I get there. Next up, I didn't get to tell you guys about this on the air last week because I had a lot of stuff pre-done. But I have released a new coffee from Holler Roast with Nicole Sauce. It's pretty amazing. I'll tell you about it and why you might want some for the holidays uh, when we get to that. Uh, get ready for a war on social media. It's ramping up, and it's going to come from all sides. And it's, I think it's orchestrated by some, but it's not everybody involved is actually on the same side or even understands what they're doing. But we're, we're going to see an attack on social media. I think you're going to see them try to turn social media into something akin to a public utility. I, I really do. And it's very disturbing, honestly. And I'll give you some examples of where I think this, this is going to start. Next up, um, I have a question that I don't think the guy really knows what he's asking. I'm saying the question is, how do I balance a, a goal for entrepreneurship with a goal for career growth? This guy's making it specific to him, but I'm going to make it more generic for everybody and try to help everyone. I have a question that I'm saying, I'm calling it, of toll roads and classes of taxes. Toll roads and classes of taxes. You can start thinking about that now and we'll get to it. I have a question on landlording and tax deductions. And then I have an article that says something that I said a long time ago. U.S. debt payments will soon exceed military spending. In fact, I said more than that a long time ago. And I don't have an audio of me uh, saying it. I have something better. I have a text that I wrote. And I'll tell you where you can find that text and learn more about money at the same time. And I wrote this all the way back in 2012. 
I did have some people tell me I was out of my mind nuts when I wrote this. I will uh, read that when we get to that segment. Before we dig into all of that today, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one, is BulkAmmo.com. Bulk ammo is where I go when I need ammo, and I'll tell you why. If I don't have to leave the house anymore, I don't. Like, think about it this way. If I want, let's say, um, to, to up my, my stash of uh, .357 SIG ammo, I go down to uh, Academy Sports and Outdoors, which is a pretty good store, honestly, and maybe they have what I'm looking for. Maybe they don't. Maybe they have .357 SIG in stock. Maybe they don't. It's a little bit oddball. I'm sure I can get 45 or 9 millimeter or whatever, but i got to go there, and i got to deal with people. And uh, this time of year, i got to deal with a lot of people, right, because it's Christmas. There's a bunch of people in there buying clothing because that's what they think a sporting goods store is for is buying fashion apparel, and i got to deal with all that. And i got to figure out when I'm going to go. Or I could go to BulkAmmo.com right now. I could place my order, and within about a day or two, some guy's going to be knocking on my door with my ammo. Now, which one seems better to you when you're going to pay about the same price or less going to BulkAmmo.com? I know what I do. I go to BulkAmmo.com, and even though I can get them to give me stuff and all, I just buy from them like you guys do. And I always use my discount code. You can find that in the benefits section of your MSB whenever I get anything from BulkAmmo. You should, too. Next up today, uh, JM Bullion. You know... I had a question that I actually forwarded to John Pugliano this morning. And it was a person asking about saving for their college, the, the child's future. Specifically said, I don't want to specifically save for college because, you know, what will college even look like? This kid is just, just born recently. And uh, they had an allocation they had laid out for how they planned on saving so far and they wanted advice on it. And I did respond when I forwarded it to Pugliano because it actually bothered me. They were planning on putting about 50% of their savings for this kid into silver and gold. Now look, I think silver and gold is a great wealth insurance program. I really do. I think it's one of the best ways in the world to hand down wealth from generation to generation without nobody needing to know about it. Especially money that you're going to leave as inheritance to your children and other heirs. You know, when you get up in years and you know you're not going to need it, why not hand it to them? Why, why not be able to explain to them what it's really all about? instead of leaving it a will where there's a paper trail. I think that's great. I think the silver and gold have a long history as monetary instruments, and I think they have a tremendous amount of value, and I have quite a bit of money saved in silver and gold, and I think you should too, but not 50%. I've recommended 5 to 10% of your net wealth in silver and gold my whole career here at the Survival Podcast. That number's never changed. So I told these people, you might want to pull that number down a bit, and we'll let, wait to hear what John here has to say on the total allocation and how to save this money. But silver and gold should be part of what you do. And I'll tell you what you should never do with your silver and gold. You should never overpay for it. The reason silver and gold make such good investments is if I have an ounce of silver, I have an ounce of silver, I have an ounce of silver. It's all the same. Maybe a little variance between, let's say, a novelty round and something like a silver eagle. But in the end, I have an ounce of silver. Doesn't matter where I go, I'm going to get about the same price for it. Doesn't matter where I go, I'm going to pay about the same price for it. But why would you ever pay more than you have to for something that's the same? Why would you pay for shipping when you don't have to? So why would you pay another company more money to ship your silver and gold to you and pay more money for the silver and gold itself when J.M. Bullion has been taking care of this audience for over six years now? They've never let me down. They've always made anything right whenever there was a mistake. You should buy from J.M. Bullion, and you shouldn't buy 50% of your net worth into silver and gold, but you should have something there 
And JM Bullion is the place to get your silver and gold. And remember, when you are getting your silver and gold from JM Bullion, log into the MSB and check the benefits section so you get a discount on it. You know, who gets you a discount on silver and gold? Who offers one? Well, JM Bullion does, and they do it through us. It's really hard to find a discount on silver and gold. It's a razor-thin margin business. I don't know anybody else that does it, uh, but JM does, and that's because they support us in the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast. So remember that when you're building your silver and gold investment portfolio. Next up, take, let's take a look at uh, this day in history. We're going back to the year 1898. It's really not that long ago in the grand scheme of history, but things were a lot different in 1898. What happened on this day? November 26, 1898, a winter storm paralyzed southern New England. A powerful early winter storm batters the New England coast on this day in 1898, killing at least 450 people in New York, Connecticut, and Massachusetts. It was Thanksgiving Day when strong winds in excess of 40 miles an hour began blowing in from the Atlantic Ocean across the New England coast. This was followed in short order by gales from the other direction. Equally strong winds roared across upstate New York from the west. Blizzard conditions disrupted the entire area. Transportation became impossible. Some trains were halted by 20-foot snowdrifts. Communication was interrupted as the wind and snow brought down telephone and telegraph lines. In some towns and villages, residents were forced to dig tunnels through the snow from their front doors to the streets. In New York City, 2,000 workers attempted to clear the streets and avenues. Boston was perhaps the worst hit by the storm. Approximately 100 ships were blown ashore from the city's harbor and another 40 were sunk. About 100 people died when a Portland-based steamer sank near Cape Cod. Um, bodies and debris filled the harbors and nearby beaches. The storm is thought to have killed at least 450 people. Though due to the wide extent of the storm, the poor record-keeping of the time is impossible to determine exactly how many people died. Again, November 26, 8, uh, 1898. So I'm going to take a little di different of a tact with this to, to kind of put some stuff in, in perspective. We've talked a lot about history. We took a journey through over 1,500 years of history with Alex Shrugged on TSP Wiki. Uh, David Byrne and Southpaw Ben kind of picked it up from there. We went about another 100 years, and that seems like it kind of faded out. But we've gotten a really great historical context. And if you remember specifically, when we were going through the, the, the years of the Black Plague with Alex Shrugged, for those that were here and those that weren't, don't worry, I'll, I'll explain what I'm, where I'm coming from with this. But... As that eventually went away, and populations were completely decimated, wiped out, um, some cities and towns just disappeared forever. And then the disease ran its course and the population began to, to come back again. And it was about 100 plus years into it where things had kind of normalized. And Alex, I remember, made a footnote in one of his entries at TSP Wiki and said that parents were beginning to care for their children again. And he didn't mean give them food and water and make sure they were warm. He meant actually be emotionally attached to them. And we had hit a point where death was so common during those periods that people stopped being emotionally attached to other people. as a psychological defense mechanism. But I don't think what people realize is that the level of which we care about people getting sick, dying, and being hurt in other parts of the world that are not just our direct family members, today is a luxury in the expanse that is human history. Recently, just before the holiday, some of the, you know, uh, Thanksgiving is a celebration of genocide of Native Americans crap showed up on Facebook. 
and I tried in vain to explain it to some people, smart people that I respect, how that's not exactly the way things were. And as we had a discussion, I, I remember saying at some point, I, I think what many people do not understand is that the 16, 17, 1500s, all the way up into the 1800s, in general throughout the world, human beings were crappy to other human beings all over the place. For whatever reason, they could to justify getting ahead. But that's just how we were. We had a totally different view of life and death in this period of time. Part of it you could see here. I doubt a storm like this would kill 450 people today. In 1898, you know, we had trains. We were pretty modernized by that point. Think what this storm would have done in an equally populated area 100 years before, say 1798. How many people have killed? How many people have lost their lives? When you live in a way where death is common, you begin to value life less. And this is a way that we've misjudged, I think, people that came before us and how we've misjudged people in other parts of the world still today. Some of these people that we, 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 we look down on, and, and I'm not saying what they do is okay or right. I'm just saying that we have a very negative view with no... And the negative view is okay. I think the lack of understanding is the problem, of the context. If you were surrounded by death and destruction, your value of life would also decline. And I think that when we're studying history, when we're studying the founders of this country, when we're studying the people that were part of the founding of this country... It's not an excuse. It's not. A, it's an all-okay thing for the, the, the bad things that were done. But I think to understand the, 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 the reasoning behind it, you have to understand how life was so less valued because it was so more often to be extinguished by things like common diseases or natural disasters today than it is today, or by war, or by famine, etc., The other thing that influenced this nation and, and the, entire of the, the entirety of the Americas a lot, being founded by Spanish, French, English, Portuguese, Dutch, primarily, uh, one way or another in, involved in, in you know, colonizing these areas. With the exception of the Dutch, they were all monarchies. And the Dutch had very limited influence here anyway. And, you know, you're talking about a time when the king could just still have somebody's head taken off. And anybody that rebelled was put to death. Anybody that caused problems was either put to death, imprisoned, beaten, etc. And one of the main things that our Continental Congress, when they were debating independence, the, the colonies that were opposed to it at first, that had not come around to the idea, would say things such as, may the, the sword of the father never shed the blood of the, of the son. And they, what they were saying is that the colonies themselves were children of, of England, and thereby children of the, the crown, the king. The sword of the king should not spill the blood of his own children, the colonies. And indeed, people looked at governors and governance as some sort of parental figure in some ways. And government was highly abusive of its people. Now, follow me with this. I'm going long on this today, but I think this is, given the, the holiday and all of the rigmarole around it that we just went through, to, to really understand things. Is anybody surprised when a child who was physically abused 
becomes an abusive adult. Now, does that make it okay? No. But is it surprising? And do you think it's probably why? In other words, when you see a child that was beaten by his parents and abused by his parents his whole life, and he becomes a, a parent himself and he's abusive, do you think maybe if he hadn't been abused, he would not have been abusive? And there's a strong correlation there. Well, the message that government had for people through this period of time, these, these hundreds of years, you are subservient to us. So what we do to you is okay. So what did they do when they looked at anybody weaker than them? You are subservient to us. So whatever we do to you is okay. It doesn't make it okay. But you, understanding the human condition, high frequencies of death, and a constant abuse by those in power, with, you know, it's okay for you to do it too, as long as it's the people we say it's okay for you to do it to. This is how we ended up, as humanity, pretty much across the globe. Because it's not like, you know, we talk about another thing from history, we talk about slavery in this country. And it's not like there was some kind of monopoly on black people as slaves in the world. There were slaves all over the world, many of them were white. We went to black slaves in this country because there was a ready supply available out of Africa, and they didn't die. They didn't die. That's the real reason. When they brought white slaves here, the white slaves got diseases and died that the black slaves didn't get and didn't die from. Yes, it became racist over time. But in the beginning, it was blunt as it sounds, a business decision. And this was the mentality of people until not that long ago. And if you understand the fragility of the human condition and the propensity of life and death at the time and the belief that those in power had a right to abuse those they held power over, you can understand that context a lot more. And despite their failings and their faults, the one thing you'll understand that our founders gave us was the belief that just because one was in power did not give one the right to abuse that power and things should be in place to prevent the use of power in the form of abuse by those who serve, not are appointed to or have a birthright to, but those who serve in leadership roles from those they purport to lead. Just my take on this complicated situation. And with that, let's get into the uh, main topic of today's show. Your emails to me at jack at the survival podcast.com. Remember, that is the email, TSPC, in the subject line. So Mike sends me an email. says, hey, Jack, I was listening last week before you went off on vacation, and you were talking about how the value of money does go down over time due to inflation, but you also said that not everything went down in price. Back when you first started the show, you mentioned some of the books that you read that influenced you. One of them was Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. I read that book all the way back then. And as you were talking about that, there was a, a part of the book that sprung to my mind. There's a part where Rich Dad is explaining that prices should not go up. They should actually go down in what he called a well-run and ordered society. Can you talk more about this, and can you maybe explain how something like student loans that are highly manipulated by government buck that trend, but other things, maybe things like entertainment, actually follow that trend, and what we can learn from that, about that in an from an economic standpoint? Thanks, Mike. Mike, that's very astute, actually. And before I'm going to go on, for those that maybe are not familiar with the book or have... Uh, 
negative things to say about this book. I want to say flat out, Rich Dad, Poor Dad reads like a factual book, like a, a autobiography of Robert Kiyosaki as a kid growing up in Hawaii with a rich dad and a poor dad. And there are autobiographical elements of truth in the book, such as he mentions that his father works in education. His father did work in education. However, his father actually was a very well-paid man. Um, and how much of the story is real and not real, I don't know. But I really like The Richest Man in Babylon, too, and I don't think any of it's true. It's a story that helps you learn by being a story versus being a textbook. So that's the concept, uh, the, the concept I come at Rich Dad, Poor Dad from. And I actually am not a huge fan of Robert Kiyosaki as, as an individual. Okay, But I do think that book is one of the best books for opening people to understanding, investing, and money, and entrepreneurship. It's very well done. And he did make that statement. I don't actually remember if that was in the original book or one of the follow-up books, but uh, Robert Kiyosaki's character is talking to Rich Dad. He says, so prices shouldn't go up. And his Rich Dad says, no, in a well-run and ordered society, I think Mike has that perfect, they should go down. And I think Mike's hitting this spot on. The more a market is manipulated by government, the more it bucks that trend. So let's look at a couple places that both follow the trend of going down in price and some that follow the trend of going up and look at how government's involved. Let's start out with entertainment and music. Let's say in 1988, you wanted to have a really great music collection. And you had already you'd been buying music for a few years and what have you, but you made a commitment like to make sure I have the best new music in the genre or two that I really like, I'm going to go out every month and buy 10 new records. And that wouldn't get you everything, but I, you know, I, I just kind of think back to me in the 80s when I was in high school and thinking, you know, if, if I had a free gift certificate for 10 free albums a month, I would have been doing pretty well, and I, I, I would have been able to get most of the music that I wanted, especially the new stuff coming out. Back then, uh, uh, and everybody was still buying cassettes, In 1988, there were some CDs around, but they were expensive. And even if you could afford the CD, you probably couldn't afford a CD player, at least if you were a poor kid from the cold country like me. So everybody had cassettes still. And a cassette would run $9 to $15 bucks for a new album. And, and let's, say, let's say $10 is the number we use. So $100 a month, you'd have a pretty rockin' music collection. And you could have pretty much most of what you wanted, especially if you've been doing it for a year. Now you're talking, you know, 120 albums. And many of us had more than that. We had, you know, they look like briefcases. You had all your cassettes in them and stuff like that. And then still, like, if you wanted to hear, you know, a, a song by ACDC, you opened your, you know, your A through whatever briefcase and looked at your ACDC tapes and found the one that had it and you played it. And if you wanted to make, you know, like a mixtape of certain music you really liked, you'd get your double cassette box out and you'd make, but, you know, let's just say that it was as convenient as it could be for the time. And it was about $1,200 a year to have access to just about anything you'd want musically. And you still really didn't, but we'll say you did. Okay, so what's that cost today? And not, you know, file sharing and not looking it up on YouTube and getting it for free, etc. Like, above board. You know, Pandora Premium or Spotify or iHeartRadio, iTunes Radio, all that stuff. And it's, let's say it's $10 a month. So we've gone from $1,200 a year to $120 a year to have all the music you want on demand and available to you all the time in any form that you want 
from albums that are 100 years old to albums that are 10 years old to albums that were released yesterday. And pretty much we have that today for about $120 a year. And there's ways that you can make it cheaper. So that's that's a decrease by 90% of cost. And it's better, cheaper, faster, and, and more. And if you look at that industry, the influence government has on it, other than copyright and stuff like that, is almost nothing. It's a true free market industry. And it's become more free than it was in 1988. And conversely, prices have gone through the floor. Now let's look at something like student loans and college educa- cost of college education. So in 1988, nowhere near the sheer number of people, percentage-wise, went from high school to college. It was a much smaller number. Because college was a lot more competitive, and you had to work harder to get in, and you know you had to pay for it, and people were not yet completely brainwashed to believe everybody should go to college. But student loans were available, Pell Grants were available, things like that. We go back a, you know, a couple more decades, it was even less. It was There was a time when less than half of all people went to college in America, but most people that worked hard had a decent living. And as more and more money came in from government to subsidize education, more and more people went and colleges expanded and the price of an education has gone up exponentially. So there's a direct correlation there between government being involved and the price of something going up. Let's look at another thing. Let's look at the cost of housing. Median cost of a home in the mid-80s is about $100,000. Median cost of a home as of September of this year is about $320,000. Now, you might be living somewhere, you go, I can't get shit for $320,000 in a house. And you might be living somewhere like, I can buy three good houses for that. But the median, and we're comparing apples to apples, has gone up about, you know, it's doubled almost every 10 years, basically. Now, it's doubled every 15 years, which is pretty standard for real estate. Now, people are more comfortable with real estate going up in value because generally if you're holding it, it's good for you that it went up in value, other than, well, you pay more taxes, and now can your kids buy a house. But how much influence has the government had on housing prices? The government has made it to where you can get a house with 0 to 3% down payment, And not that great a credit. This has created a glut of buyers, which has driven up the cost of housing. Now, housing probably should go up in value over time, but nowhere near as much as it has. And it is this influence government has on it. And we can keep looking at things, and you will find it almost everything that government has a very little to zero touch on, the cost of it has gone down over time, and almost everything government has subsidized, which is supposed to make it more affordable, the cost has gone up. Now, what will break these trends is an item that is scarce, and this is why real estate should have some appreciative value. We can build houses faster for less money today than we could in 1985. Believe it or not, we really can. Now, materials, I'm not talking about the materials. There's a whole, there's like so many different vertical markets there. You know, timber, copper, etc. They're all different. But in the end, the actual cost of building a house today, we can do it faster and cheaper. And if we would, 
get out of the way of that industry, we could do it even faster and even cheaper to where we would offset material costs. So we can always make more houses. What we can't make more is dirt. The value in real estate that should truly appreciate over time is the land because the land is limited. And anything that is finite or severely limited in the ability for us to produce will over time become more valuable as long as the population grows steadily and more people become affluent enough to go out and buy that thing. So if there's scarcity, it is going to become more valuable in time, assuming that demand remains constant or grows. And that's true scarcity, and it's also artificial scarcity. So artificial scarcity would be diamonds. One company pretty much owns like 95% of all the diamonds in the world as far as how you can get them out of the ground. The beers. Diamonds are really, when it comes down to it, worthless. They're worthless. They're a rock you dig out of the ground, you cut it a certain way, polish it up, stick it in a, in a ring, and the ring itself is worth more than the rock, but the rock is worth more than the ring in what people pay for it. Because we have created an artificial scarcity. De Beers controls exactly how much, of what quality, and what size diamonds are released every year creating this artificial scarcity, and then they do a really good job of marketing, creating a subjective value, and the cost of a diamond ring today is significantly higher than it was in 1988, 30 years ago. So that's a market manipulation. But even it is following a trend. The supply of diamonds, compared to the number of people, is huge. But the places to get them from is relatively limited, allowing them to basically put a monopoly on the supply side, even though there's tons of them there. I remember, this is back in the 80s, uh, a report by Geraldo Rivera when he was with 2020, talking about how there was this one place in Africa, I think it was South Africa, the De Beers owned, and it looks like a stripping hole. If you don't know what that is, it's a way they mine coal. It looks like a stri an old stripping hole in Pennsylvania, all slate bank. And you can throw a bucket off of this bank and drag it up. And just fill the bucket by dragging it up this 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 uh, tails field, and there'd be a significant number of quality diamonds in that bucket. That's how many diamonds there are. But they created that artificial scarcity. So whenever anybody is capable of manipulating supply versus demand, you create an artificial increase in value. If you couple that with a decrease in the value of currency, it starts to look kind of insane. But again, if something is something we can produce and we can lean out the production and produce it more efficiently, even with inflation, its price goes down. And if you look around your home, what is the cost of a 55-inch or 65-inch screen TV today? Amazon's got them. Please buy it through T-Spaz, right? Amazon's got them on, on, on Black Friday. They've got 65-inch TVs for like 600 bucks. Now, in 1993 or four, I bought one of the very last console TVs probably ever sold. I brought it at a store. Some of you will remember. Some of you won't even know what I'm talking about called Montgomery Wards. And they had an area of the store they called Electric Avenue. It was a 25-inch console TV. It was like $400. And today you can buy a 65-inch 4K You know, that's super thin, that mounts on a wall for under a thousand bucks. 
you could buy a, a, a 25 to, you know, like 32 inch screen TV for like a hundred dollars. Maybe 180 bucks, I think I saw one on Amazon for. You know, a pretty nice one. It's a lot better than that console thing was from Monkey Wards, right? So why is that though? That's because the TV is something we can just make more of. And the market will always make something that has a high demand, more efficient, and therefore cost less. And, and so the reality is, if we had a true market-based economy, you don't need robust growth in wages to have a thriving middle class. You just don't need it because you wouldn't have a, a robust growth in cost. You'd have a continuously declining cost. And in many instances, this is what the Federal Reserve is fighting against, creating inflation intentionally to prevent money from becoming stronger over time. And as you'll hear in our final segment today, it may be about to bite all of us in the ass. And who could have seen this coming? Let's talk about some other stuff for a while, though. But before we move on real quick, just the truth teller in all this is always silver and gold. If you go back and look at what you could have bought in 1935 for $1.50, and you look at what you can buy for an ounce and a half of silver today, you'll find they're remarkably similar. Remarkably similar. Not identical, but very, very similar. Now, in the 1930s, if you had a dollar and 50 cents in quarters, you had about an ounce and a half silver, didn't you? And silver and gold buck that trend and hold their value well relative against inflation over time because they are not artificially scarce. They are actually scarce. There's only so much silver and gold. We can only mine so much per year. As long as there's sufficient demand for people to hold it as a store of wealth and for other reasons and use it for other things, they retain value. And they are honestly one of the best financial truth-tellers we've had over time. They generally don't make people wealthy, but they preserve wealth. That's why I've always had the recommendation I have with them. Again, let's move on to something a bit different here. Um, let's talk about something you can spend your money on, uh, a little bit of a luxury I have worked with Nicole Sauce to come up with a really awesome uh, coffee roast. I, you know, a lot of people think of me, I guess, as kind of being kind of mean, tough. I don't know, whatever it is. But and I, I guess people just would assume that, like, when it comes to coffee, I'd like like a super dark roast, like burn that sucker, you know. I actually really like blonde roasts and medium roast coffees. The thing is, they're they're, you know, a lot of people talk about kids and say that kid's got potential, but. And that's a lot of beans out there, or the, the, I can say the concept of a blonde roasted coffee has a lot of potential, but you got to find the right bean for it to go with, and the right technique, and the right everything to make it go and, and, and go well. So, not long ago, I sent an email to Nicole Sauce, and it basically said I would really be interested in having a Jack's roast with Holler Roast coffee, but I'd like it blonde. And I'd like it bourbon cooled. And Nicole had switched me on to what you can do when it comes to cooling coffee with uh, high proof alcohol. Uh, a little bit earlier than that, she sent me a just her basic hollow roast coffee, which is awesome. And she had cooled it with vodka. And I was like, I don't really get that because vodka is a neutral spirit; it doesn't really contribute to a flavor. 
But what's actually going on here is a process that causes like some really cool things to happen with the bean. And here's how this works. The speed at which coffee beans cool impacts the sweet notes in the drinking experience. With faster cooling, you get more natural notes of caramel and vanilla and things like that. And many people that are street roasters in Vietnam use vodka as part of the roasting cycle because vodka is going to cool the beans differently than if you were to, say, use water because alcohol having a much lower temperature evaporation point. That's why when you, if you take some uh, high-proof alcohol and rub it on your skin, you immediately feel a cooling. So I was like, well, what if we had some of the character of bourbon and we did that and we did it with a blonde roast? So Nicole took this as a challenge, and she sent me like eight samples of different beans. Uh, some were from Bali and uh, all over the world, really. And I went through and I made notes. I made them all the exact same way. And uh, in the end, it came down to uh, a couple, and uh, the, the Tanzanian and the Bali were good, but it was the Sumatran coffee that won the day. And coffees in Sumatra are traditionally processed using a method called glingbash, or wet hulling. This results in a coffee that leaves the farm at a much higher moisture content than other methods uh, that are used around the world. It allows the coffee to develop some unique herbaceous characteristics that you just don't get in other coffees. To, to, typically, Sumatran beans are roasted to a very dark level in an attempt to enhance these flavors. But when we went with a blonde roast, we brought out the spicy notes and some essence of cinnamon and some other cool stuff like that. Um, and then Sumatra coffees also tend to be low in acidity compared to other beans, and this lets those earthy, herbaceous tones really shine. And you get some sweet cedar tones and some cocoa, black cherry-type stuff when you do a light roast on a Sumatran. And then when you use this bourbon cooling, you bring more sweetness, and those flavors then come to the front. This stuff is spectacular. Um, I'm kind of like, what have I done now? Because now I'm hooked on my own, my own special blend of coffee. Uh, and it, it, if you might imagine, with all of this, it's a bit more expensive than your typical coffee. It's 25 bucks a pound. But, again, this is a special bean with a special roast and then a bourbon cool process from a micro-roaster in the mountains of Tennessee. you got to try it. This is something, get a bag, share it with your friends and family around the holidays. Maybe get this for that special person that really loves coffee and wants something unique. I guarantee you can't get this. That's the thing. Like We were just talking about the prices of stuff. You can't get this anywhere else. Finding a well-done, blonde-roasted Sumatran coffee to begin with is hard. Finding one that's been bourbon-cooled and the level of care that Nicole puts into her coffee, I dare you, I defy you. Try this stuff, and I think it will absolutely blow you away. Um, I think she started out with 100 pounds. She's got like 80 left. So, like, this is going to sell out by Christmas. If you want to give it a try this holiday season... You know, get yourself some of it. You can uh, find a link in the show notes where I go through all this stuff. You can get on over to Hollow Roast and pick it up. Um, guys, you know me. I don't get really excited about stuff very often. When I do, there's a reason. You want to check this stuff out. Again, it's Jack's Blonde Bourbon Cooled Sumatran from Hollow Roast Coffee. And I know that's kind of a bit of a commercial there, but hopefully it's also kind of a, an education in the world of coffee. And hopefully it's also an education in the world of entrepreneurship. I want you to think about 
what Nicole and I are doing here, and, and it, I'll, I'll tell you the truth, I'm taking nothing except maybe a pound or two of coffee a month in return for, for working with her on this. She asked me, how do we do revenue share on this? I'm like, I don't want your money. I, I don't, you know, I don't want your money. I, I wanted to help you come up with something really unique. But how do you take this little micro roasting business in Tennessee and ended up with a super premium product? And I should take two people, because this took two people. This took me and Nicole that have a passion for coffee. I love coffee. And you take her and you give her the challenge. This is what I want to do. And she goes, I know from these years now of sampling these different beans, what is most likely to work here? And then getting together and refining that down into something totally unique, but it's not unique and then not functional, right? You get a hammer with a, with a rubber handle that like flops all over the place, and when you try to hit a nail with it, it smacks you in the arm. It's unique, but it's not useful. Right? You get a saw with no teeth. It's unique, but it won't cut a piece of wood. You make something completely unique and different that's also fantastic. And that is your challenge as an entrepreneur. And it doesn't matter whether it's a blog or a YouTube channel or a product, a widget. It doesn't matter if it's a service or if it's a brick-and-mortar thing. As an entrepreneur, that's what you need to be looking for. How do I create something that when people... Because, great, we could do this. We sell 100 pounds of it. Okay. If everybody that buys it's like, eh, eh, coffee, then what good is it? You got to go find another 100 people to buy it. No, to make a product like this work, it has to deliver on its promise. And that's what you have to do as an entrepreneur. You have to deliver on your promise so that that customer comes back time and time again. That's how you build a successful enterprise. I, with that, I, I kind of want, I'm going to juggle my bullet points here a little bit. I, I had it actually set up to go a different way, and we were going to talk about social media next. Um, but I have a question on entrepreneurship, and I think this dovetails well into that. So this comes from Daniel. Daniel said, how do you balance content creation and career go growth? Details, I'm continuing to work on my blog, thepresenthomesteader.com, and would like to create that into a business. I've also been working on learning computer programming to jump industries and increase my income. Would it be wise to just focus on one of those or making both of them happen? I'm trying to figure out how to spend my time best with both of these while spending time with my family and homestead. It does seem like career growth is a more sure option, but there's also benefits to growing your own business. Thanks, Daniel. Um, I'm going to start out with something here. I don't want to rain on anybody's parade, but there is a point where a sector, unless you're going to do something really different with it, is kind of full. And there are about a hundred gazillion homesteader blogs and homesteader channels and homesteader groups out there. And you can only pull so many fish out of a pond before the pond is empty. And then you get to a point where the people that are really specialized fishermen can still catch fish and the average guy can't get much more than a guppy. And so that industry of itself... I'm not saying you can't make a go in it. And somebody is going to start tomorrow and be one of the next big blogs in that sector. So I'm not saying you can't. But then you have to commit and you have to think and you have to be somehow different than everybody else that's there and everybody else that's really successful. So just take that in, Daniel. Like, is that really where you want to be? If it is... Fine, 
But if you think you're just going to post about all your little projects that you're going to do anyway, put up a few pictures and have a really successful blog in that space, it's not going to happen. You're going to have to do something that's a hook. Whether it's, uh, if you're a really good presenter, it's an Ask Daniel, you know, daily little, you know, two minute podcast answer or vlog, or it's going to be something like a, a whole bunch of books that are, you know, really great and then you're promoting those. I, I, I don't know what it is. But if you're going to take a half assed attempt at a blog today in any space, you're, you're really going to have a hard go of it. But if you're going to take a half-assed approach at a blog today in a, a well-hammered sector like homesteading, then you're really going to have it hard. You've got to do more than your competition. You've got to do something to be unique and build value that they can't get anywhere else. And that, again, as we just came from, that's why I wanted to dovetail these two, that applies to everything. But what you're really asking me has nothing to do with a blog, has nothing to do with homesteading blogs, has nothing to do with anything with that. This is your actual question. Do I put my effort into entrepreneurship or career development? That's your actual question. Because we can swap that blog out for some other entrepreneurial effort. And everything I just said about that blog is going to be true in that sector. Now, it may change and have some nuances and you know, maybe there's an easier way to create value. You know, is it a much bigger market? Well, it's much more consumer oriented that you can enter. You know, some of my people I follow a lot on YouTube right now because I'm a fish nerd or in the fish industry and the guy, like the guy from Aquarium Co-op, right? Sees an issue with, let's say, fertilizer for a fish tank, realizes everybody's buying 10 different things and trying to balance this and says, hey, I can make a fertilizer that's, you know, got all of the, all of the micro and macro, macronutrients all in one. And was like, no, you can't. He's like, I'm just going to make one and see if it works. And it did. So then he gets a manufacturer. So now he's got a unique value add product. Other people are chasing him now, but he's got this value add product that was unique. But this guy dedicated a lot of time and space to building his presence to where when he released that product, somebody cared. But it's, that's different than a blog, isn't it? So that's what I'm saying. Each industry can be different, but where do you put your effort? And I think you have to ask yourself, do you like the idea of being an entrepreneur or do you have a passion to control your own life? If you have a passion to control your own life, then entrepreneurship is probably the best path for you. If you just like the idea of it, and maybe you're just not ready yet, then developing your career is probably a better standpoint, especially in something like computer programming. Because computer programming can lead to a whole bunch of opportunity from an entrepreneurship standpoint. My only thing with this is, is, is being an entrepreneur over the years and trying to work with coders and get them to do things, I've always thought, if I could do what you could do, I would have been a millionaire by the time I was 30. And you can't get them to do what you know they need to do. And that's another reason I think there is this bifurcation in people. Entrepreneurship requires a level of commitment to what you're doing that I don't think most people, it's not that they're not willing to do it, they don't even understand what it is. They don't even, it, it's not, their mind actually has a point that's blocked it out. You know, if you think about it, like being on a competitive sports team, something like you know a high school football team in a, a large school in a competitive area, Where, you know, 
150 kids try for the team, and you know the majority of them don't make it. How much dedication it takes, even if you have some level of natural talent, to make a team like that? It's huge. It's it, you know it's it, it, it's entirely different than making a football team where they have to kind of like beg people to try out to get enough people to wear enough uniforms. And that's what entrepreneurship's like. It requires a level of commitment that unless something in your life has has garnered that level of commitment from you, it's hard to even get it. And to be able to do it while you're working a job is more difficult because obviously you can't put all your time into it. But most people that are the modern new age entrepreneurs, the people that have come around in the last 10 years and have built it, especially in content creation online, it's exactly what they did. And they, they poured everything into it. And they made the people that they were serving feel like, you matter to me. Because they did. They didn't fake that. You can't fake that. So I, I think you have to like, because this is like a recurring thing. I've gotten questions from you now several times on this. And I'm sorry, but I'm sensing a lack of commitment here. I'm sensing, I really like the idea of this. I think this would be really great. But I'm looking for reasons not to. That is not a criticism, it's an observation. That's okay. You know, I wasn't ready to do what I do now 20 years ago. I've been kind of a serial entrepreneur my whole life, but I never just took something and had 100% commitment to it until I found this. That happened 10 years ago. That's when I was ready. So, there's nothing wrong with you playing with this blog to learn from it. And just doing what I said would not make it a financial success. That's still worthy of doing. But also when people say, well, do I dedicate my time to this or that? Listen, if you really are spending 100% of your time working or working on your education or being with your family where you're totally present with them, I buy that. But if you spend a couple hours a day screwing off, then that's not an issue. The issue is picking one and doing it, or picking both and doing them. But my gut here, based on this chain back and forth, Daniel, is you probably need to focus on your career right now. Assuming that you actually can. Assuming there's things you can actually do. You should go do those things, get more income, develop more as a person, and keep your entrepreneurial eye open and learn the things you need to learn to be a good entrepreneur. Because blogging is just communicating. If you really sit down, you can write an article every day. Being an entrepreneur is, well, how do I monetize this? How do I build this? How do I, how do I market it? That's the more complicated thing. So as you're developing your career, learn like from the customers that you work for. I, you call them employers. I call them customers because we think differently. So when I worked as an employee, I always thought of my employer as my customer. And I would say, what does my customer do to be so successful they can afford to pay me to work for them? And I learned a lot of things that were outside my scope of my job Not by bothering my boss and making him tell me, but just by paying attention. 
When I was sitting in a meeting, I would tone out a lot. But when somebody started talking, used a word I didn't know or a phrase I didn't know or an acronym I didn't know because I didn't go to business school. I'd look it up, learn about it, think about how it applied to my customer, which is my employer. And that made me the entrepreneur. That's, that's not the only thing, but it's one of the things that made me the entrepreneur I am today. So I think, Daniel, there's, there's my honest answer for you. You may not really like it, but I'm sensing... I'm sensing a desire to not do this thing, and I'm I'm sensing less more more this. I'm sensing that you're not convinced this is the right path for you. That this that this thing, this this homesteader blog, is not going to be successful. You feel that that it's like, eh, this is just an idea. Like when you really are on the right path, you feel like, oh, this. This, this is what I want to do. Like if you felt that way, well, you wouldn't even be asking me this shit because you would just be doing it. You would just be pouring it on 100%. So I think that your challenge in becoming an entrepreneur is number one, figure out are you wired, wired for it in the first place. But then two, well then if you're going to do it, don't just do it with something you like. Do it with something that switches you on to the point where you can't switch yourself off. Well what you're emailing me with is Jack... Business is starting to build. Things are going great. I need to know how to switch this off for a couple hours a day so I do spend the time with my family. When I get that email from you, that's when I'll be excited for your future. Let's take another one. So next up, I want to tell you, I think that a real war against social media is coming. We, we've seen you know, the, uh, the saber rattling around it now for... Ah, for about three or four years, but especially the last year and a half, two years. Well, there's two articles I have linked in today's show notes, and I'm just going to give you kind of a quick summary of both of them and, and some thoughts on this. So, first one is from Forbes magazine, and the the title of this article is uh, "Should Social Media Be Held Responsible for the atrocities and deaths that it facilitates. And John, who sent me these two articles on social media, said, and, and the anarcho-libertarian would say, what? And you know, I think he means me, and the answer is, of course not. I don't think you hold social media responsible for what somebody uses it to do. And, and, and here's why. It's just our modern form of communications. I, I'm pretty sure Hitler had a phone. So should we have held the, the makers of the phone responsible for what somebody did with the phone? You, you, you kind of see what I'm saying there. On the other side of this, to a degree, Facebook looks bad in this. And they've looked bad a lot lately. Um, in the article, there was a, a, a quick reference to, uh, to Myanmar. Myanmar, Myanmar, I don't know how you pronounce it. It used to be Burma. Uh, and saying that Facebook is responsible for genocide in Myanmar. Um, this is a country that's been under military rule one way or another since 62. Uh, it has a constant history of civil war, a constant history of uh, one side killing the other side and back again. Uh, so how could Facebook be responsible for violence in this country in, in you know 2018 or whatever? And it turns out that For about five years, members of, of the Myanmar military had fake accounts on Facebook and were using it to stir up acts of violence against the Muslim minority, which is currently the you know, feeling the brunt of the most current acts of violence in the country. 
So it does look like at least some level of validity is here that, hey, this was a consorted act by a government to drum up violence against a class of its own people, that that did happen. And, and part of what makes me kind of pull a little bit back of my complete absolution to, to any social media platform, like, you're not responsible for some, what somebody does with what you put out there. Until you start saying that you are. Until you decide that you are. Because, I mean, you know, recently, just before the election, something like 400 kind of liberty-themed, right-leaning, very popular Facebook pages just disappeared because they're hate speech or whatever. But for five years, the Myanmar military was incentivizing people to go out and kill Muslims in Myanmar. And you had time to ban, you know, Ron Paul Liberty memes or something like that, but you didn't have time to... And to be fair, Facebook eventually did shut these accounts down, at least the ones that they're aware of. And I would also think that, you know, those accounts probably weren't used in English, and it's probably a little bit more difficult to police. But you get, when Facebook starts saying, hey, we're going to filter content, and you filter content because you don't like it politically, even though it's peaceful content, and you let other content go that's violent, well, then maybe you do bear some responsibility because you've, you've set an expectation. But in the end, I think you're still down to the fact that The person committing an act of violence is the person that's truly responsible for it. And so even the person incentivizing it only bears so much responsibility, the people actually doing it are the ones that are the actual problem here. Because again, I'm betting Hitler had a phone. I'm betting Hitler sent letters. Or the people that manufactured the paper or the pens, you know, complicit on attempted genocide of the Jewish Jewish race in, 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 in Europe during World War II. So it's, it's, it's a convoluted place. But the reason I'm even bringing it up, there's another article John also sent me, and it's New York wants your social media history searched in order to get a gun permit. And it's, it's a proposed bill that's probably not going to even pass. It has a lot of problems, I guess, would be the way to to, to put this. But um, it it really, it also shows government's lack of understanding of social media. Uh, it said in order for investigators to access personal accounts, applicants would have to give over their login details to social media platforms such as Facebook, Snapchat, Twitter, and Instagram. I think if you use Snapchat, it goes away. Forever. Like, it's only there for, like, this long, and then it's gone. So that wouldn't do them any good anyway. Um, they want to be able to look for one to three years. Uh, S9191 is the proposed thing. Quote, requires a person applying for a license to carry or possess a pistol or revolver or a renewal of such license to consent to having his or her social media accounts and search engine history reviewed and the investigated for certain posts and or searches over a period of one to three years prior to the approval of such application or renewal, the draft bill states. Um, that's just, I, I, I don't see that actually passing. Uh, there's a lawyer in this, uh, James Tresmond, and uh, he stated, uh, I don't believe it will be easy to pass the bill because it violates multiple constitutional rights, including the First, Second, Fourth, Fifth, and Fourteenth Amendments. 
So just a couple of constitutionally protected rights there. Um, it only needs to violate one to be struck down. And I think the real problem here is it requires you to turn over your login information. I, I don't think that there's going to ever be a point in, in, in you know, near-term history anyway that we're going to see that being made something that they can do to you. Um, however, what I think states could get away with right now would be requiring a investigation into your online activity from a standpoint of what's publicly available information prior to issuing you a, a firearm. In other words, you have a reasonable expectation of privacy in your home. So if the police or the FBI or something like that wants to put a wiretap in your home, they have to get a warrant. Now, there's some pretty shifty ways they get warrants when they shouldn't be able to, but you know, at least there's the, the concept of that. And it's because you're in your home, you have a reasonable expectation of privacy. If you're using a private means of communication, then you have a reasonable expectation of privacy. If you're posting publicly on Facebook or YouTube or Twitter or something like that, you have no expectation of privacy. As much of an anarcho-libertarian as I am, and whether or not I think the government should be able to use that information to disparage you of your rights. So there's two things here. There's one, can they access it? Two, can they use it as justification to deny you a riot? Those are two different things. But their right to access it is the same right anybody else has. You have abdicated your right to privacy by making your information public. So I do think they might do things like look up your stuff and use it as an excuse to say no in the future. Um, but this is actually what's interesting about this, this bill proposed in New York is it's not going to pass. This is, let, let me be clear. This is some New York state senator that wants to be look, look like he's tough on guns. And common sense. This is somebody making a name for themselves. This is some bullshit. This is marketing. They know, even in New York, this is not going to pass. Um, but the right is going nuts about this. And I think if you look at it, you see all sides attacking social media. And I think what we really need to understand is what is the government's game here? What does the government want? And the government wants to regulate and control everything. That's, that is what government wants. The state desires regulation and control of everything. And if you think about it, what do they not currently exhort regulation and control over? Even they already have some regulation and control over the Internet, but they control money, They control medicine. They control food. Think of anything in your life. There's a department of government that exercises control over it. And they would like to continuously expand that control. That's how government works. If government had its way, you would need a license and a permit for, or, or a permit for everything. You, you really would. That's what government, even common sense people that go into government roles end up thinking this way. Because they become convinced that's what government's job is. That's why government's so dangerous. So government wants to control and regulate everything. And there have been people already talking about making Facebook a utility. Making Facebook a utility, a public utility. Which is really kind of nonsensical. 
It's, but, but it's what they want. And if they can get everybody on all sides hating on social media, then you can get enough consensus. You don't need 100% in this country, you know. You can get enough consensus to come on and regulate the Internet, and specifically social media. And there's a reason government hates social media. It allows direct communication between people on a level that's never existed before. It really does. Your ideas are able to reach people you don't even know, that don't even know you. But if they resonate with them, they have an impact. And for an entity which wants control of people, that's very dangerous. It's very dangerous. Some kid in Florida can influence people in Washington or Oregon or... New York, or Ohio, or Texas, or in Australia, or in France. All around the world, people can influence other people. And their voice can be heard, and they can't be silenced so easily. And even when you have an organization like Facebook silencing one side, they don't silence the other side. And some other organization comes along and creates a platform that that other side can get their information out on. And I think you're you're about to see a ramp up of a war on social media that we haven't seen till this point. And I think we all need to resist the temptation to take a side in that war. Because whatever side you think you're taking in that war, there's really only two sides. Should the government be able to control and regulate Communication between individuals or not. Because it doesn't matter how we communicate or what platform we communicate on. Until we're doing something that actually harms somebody, we should be left alone. This also starts to make you think more and more about using pseudonyms and things like that in your social media. Because then, you, well, what's, you know, what's your social media? I don't use social media. What's your browser search history? I don't know. What's a browser? Right? I mean, we are getting there, I, I think, to a point where people are going to have to be more and more guarded with their information. And I think people right now should be more and more... You should be thinking more when you put information out on the Internet about the consequences of that information. Not from a standpoint of fear, but like, am I doing this in a state of anger? And hence, could this come back to bite me at some point? Do I want my, would I want my grandchild to read this 10 years from now? I think that's a better way to look at it. I think that's, that's a better way to look at it. Uh, just a thought, but I think yes, you will see this, this ramp up of a war on social media, uh, coming in, in, in a pretty real way, uh, very, very soon. Uh, next one here comes from Tom. Tom says, in your opinion, are toll roads bad? I was listening to episode 2327 where you talked about the evils of Texas toll roads. It made me think. The principle of a toll road seems to line up with anarchist principles. Only the people using it would pay for it. This seems like a voluntary transaction. I understand and agree with the shady politicians part of the discussion. When you were uh, pointing at this case in particular, toll roads in general, or just pointing out the crookedness and deceptive nature of politicians and government. Um, in this case, for those that missed that episode, I was pointing out the the way politicians screw people. 
And the short version of this is when they put I-30, the new I-30 that is the Highway 30 through Dallas and Fort Worth in many years ago in this area, they said we need to pay for it and we'll do it with tolls. But once the road's paid for, we will stop charging tolls and take toll booths down. And they did. And then they made that case on a bunch of other toll roads, and then they always found an excuse not to take the tolls away and to continue to charge people after the road's construction cost was paid for. And a lot of people in the area bought into it because you had to get these voted on uh, in various instances because they made a promise, they kept the promise, but they kept the promise so they could deceive and break the promise a bunch more times in the future, right? That's what I was pointing out. However, toll roads. The concept of the toll road, to me, actually, you know, if you t understand the state is involved, so it can't be anarchist. But it's much more uh, in line with anarchist principles than uh, an income tax or a property tax to pay for services. I use the road. It costs me this much money to drive on the road this far. I know that in advance. I pay the money. I drive on the road. And therefore, I am paying for a service. And that road's not free. Something has to pay for it. So this seems to make sense. On one level, I think that, first of all, let's go back to what I've always said about government and the roads. While I would prefer a stateless society, I find the construction and maintenance of roads to be one of the most benevolent things that government does. And one of the most useful things that government does. It's one of the few things that government does that we all use all the time. In general, they work pretty well. Every once in a while a bridge collapses or something, but in general, our road system's pretty decent in this country. Those of you that don't think it is, there's some countries I can send you to where you'll find out how good it really is. And it does work, and almost all of roads are paid for with use fees. Gas tax is a use fee. Vehicle permits and licensing and registration are usage fees. And tolls are usage fees. My problem with tolls is, so if the state gets involved, again, let's imagine a, a, a private toll road from a public toll road. How this would work. I want to put in a private toll road, because one doesn't exist yet, let's say, between Oklahoma City and, and Dallas, Texas. Now, I-35 does that, but let's say there wasn't one, or I wanted to compete with I-35 because it's not that great. So I would need to buy a strip of land wide enough to make a road from all the people that own that land between Dallas and Oklahoma City. I would have to pay each one of them out of my own pocket or the pocket of my investors who believed in the project enough to fund it. Uh, to whatever amount they needed to give me this wide strip of land goes through the property. I would then have to fund the construction of it, and then I would have to maintain it at such a level that the people would continue to use it and pay me for access to it, or I would go broke. The government steals the land for the road under eminent domain, pays people a pittance compared to what it's actually worth, destroys people's lives who don't want to sell because they want their road to be straight. Then they use money that they steal in the form of taxes to build the road, and then they tar charge you to drive on it. And they double tax you because you're paying a motor uh, a road usage fee in the form of motor fuels tax, plus you're paying in the form of your vehicle registration, albeit quite smaller, what have you, and then you're paying again in a toll. 
So I think the concept, if government worked like this, I, I, let's say that I can even swallow my anarcho pride and say, you know, roads are important. My roads, they're important. And, you know, sometimes for the greater good, I can't say it. I can't, I want to and I can't. I can't. But here's where, here's far as I can go. The roads that are there already, okay. You stole that land? It's in the past. You want to build any new roads? You got to pay out of pocket. You want to expand any roads? You got to pay. You got to come up with a way to do it. And we'll let the government continue to run the roads. And pretty much every major road can have a toll. But that's the money you get for the roads. And that's all you get. You, I, st I hate this. I hate this solution with air quotes around it, right? But you're still closer to something that makes sense. Or if you tried, you know, if you did a tax by the mile, which is what I think they're going to do, okay, then I'm only paying for the service that I'm choosing to use to travel on the road that is funded with the money that people that use it are paying. Okay? I, you know, I can, I can buy into that to a degree, but then you have to stop stealing money from other sources. There has to be a single way in which users pay for this thing and only users pay for this thing. When you take money from people who don't use it and then continue to charge people that do, you, you see where I have the problem here. This is what the state always does. However, I, I take heat from this from a lot of anarchists. I am a pragmatic anarchist, and I do think there is a place for minarchism as a transitional you know, modular, module into uh, a stateless society. I think this is like seven or maybe 17 generational thinking to even get to this state. You can't just do this tomorrow. And I think moving toward a standpoint of the people that use the service pay for it, whether they're paying a private company or paying the state in the form of a fee or a tax or a license, seems to make a lot more sense to me uh, than just taking property from people. And, and you see how difficult it is for me to discuss this, and I think this is this is indicative of how evil and nefarious the state really is as a thing. Because it's actually shut down our ability to solve these problems without the state. And, and right now, guys, we need it. I, I hate to say that, but we need the state right now because it's, it's just not feasible that we could shut this monstrosity off and not have massive amounts of death and destruction in the world. And it goes back to the saying that I really like. People say that taxes are the price we, we pay to live in a civilized society, and that's not true. Taxes are the price we pay for failing to have built a civilized society. Next up, Big Lou has a tax question. He accepts, that I should say, tax attorney and CPA to him. He says, but in your opinion... When what are what are renting a room's tax benefits? Do I rent a room and keep the cash and keep it between me and the fence post? Um, and basically, what he says is, let's see, I'm about buying, I'm about to buy this new house, and I've got an extra room in it, and I'm following being a landlord and renting the room out. And if I rent the room out and I report the revenue, then I can claim certain business expenses, and that will then reduce my tax burden. But I have to pay tax on the money. So even though I reduce it, I'm going to pay some tax. Where if I just keep my mouth shut and don't pay the tax and don't tell them that I have the income, then I'm probably better off. 
And I can't tell you to break the law, right? I can't tell you to break the law. And the tax law clearly states that if you were to receive that income, you will have an obligation to report it under the voluntary system of taxation that's not voluntary, uh, of United States federal income tax and your state's income tax if you have it, uh, and then, yes, to, to claim your deductions. Um, here you go. If you were willing to break the law, not by my advice, economically, with something like you're talking about here, renting a room, you would be better off just keeping the money, putting it in your pocket, and going on with your life. Right? That's if you were willing to break the law, which I cannot advise you to do. All right? Though, you know, I kind of feel that not paying a tax on something like that is uh, uh, righteous resistance. Uh, and it would also be uh, agorism at its finest, but I can't advise you to do it. Okay? Um, now, He's also thinking about eventually building some tiny houses and renting those out. The more you do like that, the more it becomes worth going above board because the more that you have to lose. And there's some other things you'd have to think of here. So I knew this guy one time that ran a business. It was a very cash-intensive business. Um He was very close to me, and I'm not talking about myself. He's a family member. And he ran this business for years and years and years. And it had a lot of above-board revenue in it because he sold something that often got paid for with a credit card and things like that, um, and it was a high-volume commodity. So he reported all that revenue. He also sold another thing that was a used widget, a used thing that people came in and bought. And he bought most of those for cash, and he sold most of those for cash. It's a completely legal business, I want to be clear. But he really had two revenue sources, and the one that was a higher profit was an all, almost all cash business. And he kept his mouth shut about it between him and the fence post. He also had a couple different employees during that period of time who he paid cash money under the table. And most of them eventually figured out what he was doing. One of these particular employees became a real problem, which employees sooner or later, like tenants, often can do. So he fired him. And this guy then demanded money. He wanted extra money for not working for a certain amount of time as like a severance type thing. Because as he had been working for cash and whatnot, uh, he had no unemployment that he could go claim or anything like that. And when this person told him to basically go blow it out his ass, he said, I wonder how the IRS would feel about the fact that you've been taking in these tens of thousands of dollars every month uh, on this side of your business and not paying any tax on it or reporting any of the revenue. And basically extorted a payment um, out of this person that I know uh, in order to keep him quiet. And it also got to the point where the guy decided, oh, I'd come back and get some more money. And it, it, it ended up taking going well outside the bounds of the law and explaining to this person that he could either learn to shut his mouth or it could be wired shut. And in the end, the guy did keep his mouth shut because I'm pretty sure that the threat to take every tooth out of this guy's mouth if he was going to go down anyway from this other individual was valid. 
And uh, so he went away and never came back, but it could have been a real problem. If you're taking cash money from a tenant, you've got to think about the fact that that could become an issue at some point. They could, you know, conceivably, when you want to evict them, make that an issue for you. Uh, and also understand that when you take somebody in as a tenant, you can't just say, you know what, it's not working out, I want you to leave. Uh, the laws are different in every state, and some individual laws by county or city. Uh, you can end up in front of a judge. It's, it's a complicated thing. So what I'm saying is, while I'm all about agorism, there are certain places where keeping things under the table have a potential to come out from under the table in the future. And when the customer has specific protections, that potential's higher. So if you're renting a weekly tiny house on a weekly rental where the person is not considered anything more than a, a tenant at like a hotel, you are in a better position than you are renting a room in your home on a monthly basis. You have basically then created a place where that person has a physical address with you. And lots more laws apply to their protection. For the same reason that they apply to your protection if you rent an apartment, that assuming you're paying your rent, your landlord can't just decide, you know, there's a guy willing to pay $100 more for this unit, you get out. You get into a lease contract type arrangement, things like that. Okay, so that has a lot more potential to end up in court and things get nasty. On the other side of it, doing things like an Airbnb type thing or whatever, there's a lot more paper trail there. And there's also a lot more potential to create deductions. So I can't tell you when and where to put cash money in your pocket or to report revenue. I can tell you what the law says, you're supposed to do it all the time. But I think you have to take a much more holistic look at what you're doing when you're making that decision. And you don't need to think about now or will some guy named Cecil at the IRS figure out that I've been getting $250 a month for this room. If all things go the way that you, you, know, you would expect them to, which guy lives there, rents it for a year, decides to move on with his life, the, the odds of that happening are you know, like a million or a billion to one probably. But what you might have to worry about is Thomas, who you rented the room to, that becomes a problem as a tenant that you evict and end up in court with with a vendetta. So you need to set things up, even outside of the tax question here, to avoid that as much as possible. How do you structure that arrangement to, to make it a reasonable expectation that if I want you to leave, you got to leave? Within the boundaries of what the law will allow you to do. And that's beyond my my knowledge. So I'll, I'll leave it at that with that one. And guys and gals, I'm going to pull up and, uh, and cut the final segment today. We were going to talk about um, the debt and the ballooning interest payment on the debt. Um, I'm supposed to do a show on greenhouses tomorrow. I haven't decided if we'll do that show tomorrow like I planned or kick it to next week and do a show. Because I, I, as I think about this, I've gone kind of long today. And I'm sorry, my timing and everything is off. I think it's partly from being off for so many days, and uh, not just the, the Thanksgiving holiday, but the workshop before it and only a few days in between. I'm also really congested with some kind of allergy, some kind of craps going on around here. 
uh, and it's just got me a little bit off. So I, I, I apologize for that, but I don't want to drag this show out and, and make it any worse. Uh, so we'll wrap up here. I do want to remind you guys, though, that you can help support this show by doing your online shopping through tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Um, and I got a great product for you guys today. It is uh, Cyber Monday, and everybody's doing their uh, holiday shopping early and getting it done from home, which I completely agree with. I hate malls and stores and, well, crowds of people. But the item of the day I have for you today is the Easehold Aroma Essential Oil Diffuser. Guys, I know we talk about guns and stuff around here all the time, but a lot of us have ladies in our lives, and I'm going to tell you, this is a great gift for the holidays. It's only 30 bucks, and it's an essential oil diffuser. You put a little essential oil in it, you turn it on, and it makes the house smell nice. Uh, this has a lot of benefits. It does make the house smell nice, but essential oil oils are a great way to do gentle, effective herbal medicinal treatments. They, there's a lot that they do. I'm not going to go deep in it today, but, I mean, essential oils are antivirals, antibiotics, antiseptics, just to name a few. Uh, there are hospitals in Europe that use... Uh, lavender oil misted into the rooms and into the hallways that have much better uh, reduction in things like staph infections than we do, just to give you an idea of how valuable this stuff can be. But it also does smell good, and ladies tend to like that. So if you've been looking for something uh, to get somebody as a present, I think it's a good idea. And in my write-up today, I also have... Uh, from a company called Rada Beauty Products. And if you uh, want a company you can trust in the world of, uh, of essential oils, and there's a lot you can't, Rada is one of them, R-A-D-H-A, just like it sounds, Rada Beauty Products. Uh, they have an 18-oil sampler that you can get for like another 30 bucks. It's like $32 or something like that. Uh, and you can put that together for about 60 bucks. It is a hell of a gift. And... The reason I still recommend this, I recommended this product last year about this time, a little less than a year ago, and a lot of people bought it, and I recommended it one more time, you know, midway through this year, and over 200 of these have sold through uh, my Amazon links. I can see how much people buy and what they buy. I can't see who you are. Amazon doesn't let me see any customer information, and I'm fine with that. They shouldn't, but I can see, like, on this day... You know, like three people bought this thing. And as an, an associate, you need to know that information so you know what to, to, to market and push. And so I pulled up, you know, over a year how many of these sold. It's over 200. And when I recommend products, if I ever have a, a product that has some problems with it, even little bitty problems, even when they get taken care of, like, you know, I had a problem, I sent it back, they get me a new one, but I, I hear it. And I think that's good. I want to hear it. I don't find it to be uh, in any way a, a, a burden to hear, hey, you recommended this and there was a problem. I want to know. I've had no complaints about this thing. So I think the, the, the idea of using essential oils is great. I think a diffuser is one of the best ways to use them. And I think a $30 product that always works is really a great investment. And it looks good, too. It looks really cool. Anyway, check it out, and remember, you can help support us no matter what you buy, as long as you do your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. And guys, yeah, I want to, real quick before I wrap up today, I want to uh, apologize for feeling very, very off today. Uh, there's, like, 99% of the time, there's no editing in this show. There's none. I mean, I, I don't edit anything. All I do is just do the show, stick the bumper music on it, and upload it. 
Uh, today, there's a lot of stuff that ended up, you know, proverbially on the cutting room floor. Uh, stuff that I just threw out, redid, and I still am not happy with it. Uh, I promise you that I will be back with what you're accustomed to tomorrow. I, I will make that happen. And I may go into this thing on the debt. We haven't dug into that in a long time. And, um, again, I wrote this book in 2012 called The Real Truth About Money. And I made a prediction in there that the cost of servicing our debt would be the single largest line item in our budget. And that's coming true today, you know, six years later. And I was told I was crazy when I, it's never going to do that. You're not, because the other departments will grow, blah, blah, blah. No, no, it's, and it's, it's really frightening. It's one of those things that you look at, and as optimistic as I try to be about our future, I, I have real grave concerns with the confluences of several things, and one being the cost of servicing this debt. And when we add that to things like automation, And we add that to things like a student loan bubble. Uh, I think economically, uh, we're at some point going to hit a, a major, major series of landmines here. And we probably need to start strategizing more now as to how we prepare ourselves for it. So we may go with that to tomorrow, but it's not going to happen tomorrow, right? So we may do a show that's a little bit more light and airy tomorrow and talk about building greenhouses And then maybe next Tuesday we'll we'll dig into this topic because, uh, man, guys, there is uh, there's a lot to be concerned about. However, I also believe in enjoying our lives. So I have got a week of music set up for you with, uh, that is just going to be great. Um, the artist you're about to hear is named, and I'll probably mess up his name because I don't speak good Italian, uh, Luca Stricanoli. And he is an acoustic guitarist, and he is a very, very gifted person. And the song you're going to hear today, and you're going to hear him all week, but the song you're going to hear today is Miserloop. And a lot of you are like, what? Huh? I guarantee you, you have heard this piece of music before. Um, it got made popular, I think, in the 60s. Uh, and then it ended up being used in a lot of music. The Beach Boys used it in kind of like surf rock. Uh, genre, uh, and then what most people will know it from, and kind of the version thereof that he's playing here, is from the movie Pulp Fiction. And as soon as you hear the beginning, you'll know this. This is what I want you to know. I always put up a link to the video to go with the music and the show notes. This one might be worth checking out. This is being played by one man holding one guitar. And He's got kind of a drum plate on the guitar so you can get the percussion going with it. And instead of just like, you know, have you seen people play the guitar where they're like slapping the guitar with their hands? He has basically a, a, a drumstick in his, in his strum hand so that as he's strumming, he can hit this plate. And at the beginning of the song, as he's starting to play, he's in a guitar shop and there's guitars on stands all over the place. And he kicks his shoes off, you know, using, you've done it with your, you know, you use your feet, kick, you know, use your right to kick your right off, your left off, your left to kick your right off. He kicks his shoes off, he starts walking through this guitar shop. And there's points where you hear like this second guitar coming in, just like be hammered. He's doing it with his feet. He's playing the guitar 
doing the percussion with the drum plate on the face of the guitar while playing the other guitars with his freaking feet. This guy's awesome. I hope you enjoy this week of music. And again, guys, I will, I promise you, this will be, this will be the show you're, you're used to when I come back tomorrow. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.